There's a great line in Nick Hornby's novel, High Fidelity, where one of the characters muses on the great uh, value of hindsight. He says, I can see everything once it's happened. I'm very good at the past. It's the present I can't understand. I guess it's a comment that makes most of us smile because most of us feel at some point the same way. We can see everything when it's happened. We're very good at the past. It's the present we don't understand. So amidst the busyness and the complexity and the difficulties of life, we can sometimes struggle to understand the present. What is life all about? Interestingly, the Bible is less philosophical and far more practical when it comes to answering that question. Indeed, according to Titus 2, the remarkable and yet surprisingly unglamorous answer to the meaning of life is that life is all about living God's way. So, verse 11, Titus 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Life is all about godliness. It's all about living God's way. Every day we face a myriad of decisions and in everything, whether the issue is seemingly mundane or apparently life-changing, In everything, the choice is always whether we say no to ungodliness and choose instead to live God's way. And according to Titus 2, life is all about godliness in the home, in the church, in the workplace. That was the world's reaction to the idea of godliness, the idea that living God's way is the best way, well, at best it's amusement, probably bewilderment, even incredulity. For many people, the idea of living a godly life is, well, it's certainly weird, it's probably repressive, and it is definitely unrealistic. So there was an interesting article in the Times just the other week examining the views of the unreligious. The title, was, the title of the article was interestingly, I'm not religious, but... Dot, 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 and then a series of interviews. And the one I found particularly striking was that of Anna Ford, uh, the TV presenter journalist. And she said this, What I dislike intensely about religion is the way that religion imbues people's lives with a, sense, with a sense of guilt and sin. What I dislike intensely about religion is the way that religion imbues people's lives with a sense of guilt and sin. See, all that sin and guilt stuff, it's so unhelpful, isn't it? So unhelpful. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit repressive and it's deeply unrealistic of course the trouble is that for those of us who call ourselves Christians our reaction to living a godly life is often not much different to the world's godliness is often to the believer what sprouts are to Christmas 
you know, a necessary but unappetizing accompaniment to forgiveness. For some of us at least, godliness and sprouts are hard to swallow and their digestion is unpleasant from beginning to end. And yet Titus 2 teaches us that real life, real life is about living God's way. See, as Paul mentioned before, when you look at Titus 2, you see that Paul says that, the Apostle Paul says that our life should be shaped by these two great appearings. The reality of Christ's first appearing in verse 11. The grace of God that has appeared. Jesus' life and death and resurrection. There's Christ's first appearing, verse 11. And then there's the inevitability of his return, verse 13. His glorious appearing. And Advent prepares us to remember rightly Christ's first appearing by drawing our attention to his return, to his reappearing. As Philip Hacking often comments, that Advent rescues Christmas from sentimentality and it allows us a necessary and important spiritual health check. So what I want us to consider this morning from Titus 2 is two lessons in life that are worth unpacking before we even reach Christmas Day. And the first is this. Christ's first appearing is a reminder that grace saves us and trains us. Christ's first appearing is a reminder that grace saves us and trains us. See, when we remember Christ's first appearing, we remember what? Well, we remember, verse 11, that the grace of God appeared. Grace is one of those wonderfully rich Bible words. Grace, the gift of God that is so undeserved, the unmerited forgiveness of God written in the nail-scarred hands of the Saviour. Grace, in the words of that wonderful Easter hymn, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. See, that is why the child in the manger is of good news of great joy for all people. For here is a gift that takes no account of status or morality or wealth. For no one is good enough that they don't need it. And no one is bad enough that they can't receive it. See verse 11, the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. This gift of salvation, this gift of forgiveness and a fresh start, this gift is for everyone. Even you. Now, of course, it is a gift that can only be received by faith alone. And understood rightly, faith is simply a humbled heart and empty hands. You cannot bring anything to God to secure his forgiveness except your sin. And faith is simply the recognition that salvation is all of grace. And yet, although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is true that faith is never alone. So you can put it like this, we are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by our good works. But we are not saved without our good works. 
Why? Because the grace that saves us also trains us. The grace of God, verse 11, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us, or I think a better translation is, it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace that saves us also trains us. I always think that there's quite an interesting shift in TV adverts as you move from pre-Christmas to post-Christmas. So pre-Christmas, there is for the aspiring couch potato the promise of the new sofa, guaranteed delivery by Christmas, and every imaginable sugar-filled, fat-laden delight that will cement you to your newly acquired cushions. But then come Boxing Day, everything changes. And suddenly it's Weight Watchers and health clubs, rabbit food and exercise. Well, the message of Titus 2 is that Christmas should actually be stimulus for more than a little New Year, more than a little new year physical training. Christmas should also lead to a renewed commitment to godliness training. Why? Well, because the grace that saves us also trains us. See, to come to Christmas and to wonder at the grace of God that appeared in history. To wonder again at love come down. God himself in our midst bearing our guilt and shame. To wonder at the grace of God. Is that not the greatest imaginable incentive to godly living? Grace trains us. It trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Actually, the sense in verse 12 is that grace doesn't just train us once, it goes on training us. Now, for some of us, becoming a Christian brought a newfound enthusiasm for living God's way. But the reality also for many of us is that with time, that enthusiasm fades. It's almost as if we trained for a spiritual half marathon, but now that the race is over, we're back on the spiritual sofa with a tube of Pringles and a bag of toffee. But the grace of God that has appeared trains us and goes on training us. And wondering again at the grace of God that brings salvation is the greatest incentive to say no to ungodly ways of living and thinking that have grown more attractive with time. See, the grace of God that has appeared trains me to say no. It trains me to say no to always putting work before my family. It trains me to say no to the idea that my wealth is mine and that God can't have any of it. It trains me to say no to almost any imaginable thing that takes hold of my soul and wars with it in this battle to live a godly life teaches me to say no to laziness 
teaches me to say no to greed, to anger, to lust. The grace of God has appeared. Grace that saves us and trains us by teaching us to say no. So the first appearing, Christ's first appearing is a reminder that grace saves us and trains us. But secondly, Christ's second appearing is a reminder that hope obligates us and delights us. Christ's second appearing is a reminder that hope obligates us and delights us. So again, remember, Paul is getting in our vision these two appearings that should shape every believer's life. The reality of Christ's first appearing, verse 11, and the inevitability of his return, verse 13, his glorious appearing. And what God has done in the past through Christ's first appearing, it orientates us to who we will be in the future when Christ reappears. See, through the work of Christ, those who trust in him have, verse 14, they've been redeemed. But they are being refined. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, we are, verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, hope in the Bible is assured, not uncertain. So whilst we may hope that a new English football manager will make all the difference, deep down you're not particularly hopeful, are you? Or or maybe you hope that perhaps this year, Just maybe this year there'll be less socks and less ties and less Woolworths bargain bubble bath. But actually, you know that the odds are not terribly promising when it comes to opening the stocking. Because you've seen all those bewildered people staggering around Meadowhall trying to think of a present to buy. But in the Bible, hope is not an uncertain thing. It is something that is assured. So when Paul speaks of the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, it's certain. And that hope, Paul seems to say, creates a sense of obligation. See, we are to be now what we are becoming. God has redeemed us and he is refining us so that one day we will be like him. You get the same kind of idea in in 1 John. Just keep a finger in Titus 2 and turn over to page 1226. 1226, 1 John chapter 3. Paul's saying that the hope of Christ's reappearing creates a sense of obligation to be what we're becoming. And John says the same thing here. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure.
See, hope creates a sense of obligation. We are to be now what we are becoming as God's own people. Now, of course, as a culture, I think we're far more comfortable talking about rights than obligations. Everyone wants to talk about their rights. Most of us are quite uncomfortable talking about obligations, something we'd rather not think about. And yet, if you come back to Titus chapter 2, you see that in verse 13, Paul clearly indicates that God's people have an obligation to live a godly life. We are to live a godly life while we wait. I find it interesting that the idea of obligation hasn't always been a negative one for believers. So many of you will be very familiar with the Book of Common Prayer. And in the Book of Common Prayer, the minister reminds the congregation that it is, quote, our bounden duty at all times and in all places to give thanks to God. It is our duty. And of course we give thanks, again as the prayer book puts it, we give thanks by giving ourselves to God's service and walking before him in holiness and righteousness all our days. And yet the fact remains that to modern ears at least, obligation and duty have very negative connotations. It all sounds like hard work and joyless. And yet when you read the Bible you have to conclude that such a conclusion is only half correct. To be sure, godliness is hard work. It's incredibly hard work. I mean, let's be honest. Any training that is of any value is always hard work. If you train physically for something, it leaves you hot and exhausted and tired and aching. Why do we imagine for one moment that spiritual training is any less difficult? Of course, what I want is the spiritual equivalent of those electric body toners. You know, the kind of thing that gets advertised in the back of magazines and newspapers, particularly around this time of year. The pads that you put on your body that effortlessly deliver the body of an athlete with the only exertion required being the flick of the on switch. See, that's what I want when it comes to being godly. So instead, when I find training in godliness is hard work and painful, I'm surprised and easily discouraged. See, Paul says hope creates a sense of obligation, a duty to live a holy life in the light of Christ's return. And the reality is, godliness is hard work. But it is not, or it ought not to be, joyless. See, Paul says there is a duty in godliness, but there is also a delight See, as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, there is obligation, but there is also enjoyment. God's people are redeemed from wickedness. For life without Christ is slavery, not freedom. So why would you want to go back there? It's like Israel in the Old Testament wanting to go back to Egypt. No, God redeems us from wickedness, verse 14, so that we can be a people that are his very own 
eager to do what is good. Now we're eager for the things that bring us joy, aren't we? Now we put up our Christmas tree this week and there's one six-year-old in our house who could barely contain his enthusiasm. Actually, I think he was far less eager to dress the tree and far more eager to eat the chocolates thereon. But the point's the same. He was eager for things he enjoyed. So could it actually be that godliness is both a duty and a delight for the believer? Could it be that in all the hard work of godliness training we discover genuine freedom and joy? See, perhaps as G.K. Chesterton's famously observed, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And because the Christian ideal has been tried and found difficult, we have given up and forfeited the joy that Christian hope brings. I read a wonderful quote this week from Bach. Uh, the composer, who said this, God's gift to his sorrowing creatures is to give them joy worthy of their destiny. God's gift to his sorrowing creatures is to give them joy worthy of their destiny. And Paul says that delight comes in duty. See, Christ's first appearing, it's a reminder that grace saves us and trains us in godliness. And Christ's second appearing is a reminder that hope obligates us to live a godly life and that such a life will bring joy. For in a right duty, there is also a true delight. Of course, the interesting thing about Paul's teaching here is that it's really an explanation of what he said earlier in the chapter. As you probably noticed as Sarah read it, verse 11 begins with the word for. In verses 1 to 10, Paul has been explaining how living a godly life actually attracts people to the message of the gospel. So that whatever the world's bluster about sin being naughty but nice, the reality is... The reality is that there is something profoundly attractive about a godly life. Because godliness has a profoundly humanising effect. True godliness is life as it was meant to be lived. And whilst our natural tendency is to suppress that truth and believe lies to the contrary, insofar as we acknowledge that truth, godliness really does seem the best way to live. I remember age 16, the first time I met a group of committed Christians. What impressed me most about their lives was their love for each other. It was their love for each other. See, I was part of a group where kind of bitching and and backbiting was the norm. One person's insecurity fed another's and you could never really be sure who was saying what about you behind your back. But these Christians were different. There was a strength 
a security, a love amongst them that I'd never experienced before and it was deeply attractive. Now, of course, it's true that in and of itself, living a godly life is not enough if people are to become Christians. Faith comes through hearing the gospel message. And I became a Christian when I heard the gospel message by reading of the grace of God that appeared in Jesus through a Gideon's New Testament. But important though the message is, Paul's point here is that without a godly life, we might speak the truth, but the way we live might actually turn people off. So if you cast your eye to the end of verse 5, chapter 2, you see in the home we're to live God's way. Why? End of verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. In the church we're to live God's way. Why? Well, end of verse 8. So that those who oppose us may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And what's true at home and in the church is also true in the workplace. We're to live God's way. Why? End of verse 10. So that in every way we will make the teaching about our God and Saviour attractive. And ultimately, Paul says we should live a godly life because, verse 11, because of these two appearings. Because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it it teaches us, it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Well, let's pray, shall we?